This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Matthew Kreiner, an analyst and researcher of the far right and radicalization, and we are discussing the boogaloo. Um... So the reason we wanted to do this show, very similar to our reasoning with the show we did with Samantha Kuttner, which was there's a lot of movements that have kind of evolved post-2016, right? And with that, you've seen this uptick in media coverage, but most of that coverage is focused around white nationalism, white supremacy, um, and a lot of groups that are just like... um, groups you would think of like Richard Spencer, people like Richard Spencer and stuff like that. And that's been covered a lot. Um, what we wanted to do with this series is cover these groups that have media coverage, like the Proud Boys, like the Boogaloo, but have not presented an opportunity for other groups to do a deep dive into them. What is their ideology? What is their membership like? What are their goals? Is it really just this bunch of online weirdos who are LARPing in the real life, in, in real world, Right. So we wanted to do kind of a deep dive. Uh, we did a deep dive on the Proud Boys with Samantha Kuttner. And today with my guest, Matthew Kreiner, we're going to do a deep dive on the Boogaloo. So please welcome Matthew. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, let's start with a really basic question. It's sort of an overview question, which is, what is the Boogaloo? What do we think of it? I think... Um, with the George Floyd protests, like on TikTok and on, on Twitter, I kind of saw like guys in like Hawaiian shirts with automatic weapons. And you saw a lot, like there was this sudden appearance of these guys just showing up mm-hmm. in these protests. Um, so what is the Boogaloo? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely one of the most basic questions to ask. And it quite frankly might be the hardest to answer. Um, it really truly depends on who you ask, uh, and what it, one of the main reasons I say that is even within the research community, there's a lot of different interpretations of how we should even ask the question. Um, within the, the Boogaloo itself, there's a lot of debate. What are we? Are we racist? Are we not? Should we allow racism? Should we not allow it? Uh, should we be more active in, in offline spaces, more involved in direct action, if you will? Um, <clears throat> so these are fundamental questions that help you know define what a movement or or not a movement is uh but for the boogaloo you know it i think a lot of people really know the boogaloo as these weirdos with hawaiian shirts and guns showing up at protests whether it was the reopen protest prior to the george floyd or during the george floyd protests um but i I like to think of it in in two real terms uh so i have two working definitions that i've I've really been building out the first is it's, it's a slang term, the Boogaloo, for inciting violent uprisings against the government and its agents. I think it's a pretty generic approach to it that allows for the, the broad spectrum understanding and activism within the Boogaloo without you know, really putting it in a box and saying that monostatic element, that's the Boogaloo. Because to say that now is sort of shortchanging ourselves moving forward and rather, I think a little dishonest uh, if we're evaluating it as it stands and what it presents itself to, to everybody else. The second sort of area to look at is that it's a shared narrative that really amplifies existing anti-government animus and provides that offline justification for the use of violence. Um, So it's not something new necessarily. It is the the Hawaiian shirts, the guns, the LARPing, if you will, uh, the offline shit posting. Those are things that are new-ish, but they're not unique to radical action in the political space. Uh, we've seen very similar narratives against government for the same catalyzing events spur other offline actions and even online actions. Uh, so I think that's a good way to place to start when we're talking about what is the book. So you mentioned that they're very online or you you kind of touched on their onlineness. 
And I, I kind of remember like going through 4chan and some of the, let's just say weirder parts of the internet um, <laughs> that, that right. kind of boogaloo was being used as a slang word. And it's, it almost feels like now that like kind of studying for this conversation, like you can kind of see that they came from 4chan, 8chan, whatever. Um, so as like in a more analyst and more analytic question, like how, how online are they? Like, are they, let's just start there. How online are they? How much of the, yeah. of their narrative and ideology is a product of that online environment? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think we can really say pretty confidently that a vast majority of it is uh, a, a product of online organizing and online interactivity uh, within the boogaloo, if you, call, if you want to call it like a defined entity at this point. Um, you know, it re- Facebook and its its statements on the deplatforming efforts they've taken cited a 2012 origin. Uh, I think that's reaching a little bit, but it's not too much uh, beyond the understanding of where it emerges from. But that 4chan, Telegram, uh, Facebook, and, and other platform, sort of those niche areas that it it started in really, really expanded, particularly in the latter half of 2019, to where the boogaloo itself at some level or, or, or form is very online. I mean, it itself sort of grew out of that super online culture of 4chan or the chans in general. And today it's almost impossible to think of it without thinking of memes. I mean, one of the best descriptions that I've seen so far of what the boogaloo is um, as it relates to online to offline action was actually a boogaloo individual. Uh, I'll refrain from using his name. Um, that was at one of the, the, it was the, one of the second amendment protests. Um, he leads a small faction of boogaloo individuals. Uh, and he described himself and those that are there engaging in, in activity as the memes themselves. So they, they really felt that they were bringing an online construct into the real world in order to amplify these sort of grievances and bring people into a sense of mobilization. So I think that really captures it. You know, it's, it's, you can't distinguish the offline and online anymore when it comes to the boogaloo because, well, it is both. That's really interesting to me because like the, the way that I'm understanding it is that you, the boogaloo is kind of to be taken as a anti-government sort of violent movement, but here you're pointing out and saying that they kind of lack cohesion, they're, that they're not kind of like, they're not like the three percenters. They're not like these other sort of sovereign citizens or revolutionary groups or whatever you want to call them. Like, it almost seems like, like, what is the cohesion? What is the cohesion, cohesive element? Like it's, I understand there's like a shared identity, like with the sharing of memes and sort of that mimetic part of it. But when we talk about something that is an offline violent movement, you know, how do we think about cohesion and cohesiveness here? Yeah, that is, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the main questions I ask myself every time I look at it, you know, the, um, and that's the challenging thing to define or even categorize in a lot of ways uh, from an analytical standpoint. Um, one approach that I've, I've tried to sort of sit within is, is evaluating it from what it presents itself as. So, you know, if, if they're claiming they're a meme in real life and, and they're engaging in a way that across the board sort, sort of feels more like a brand than anything else, then you know, why not take it as such? I, I see no problem with that from an analytical standpoint. <clears throat> so when we look at that, you know, there's certain narratives and grievances that have really um, show a growth of cohesion or, or allow us to find that cohesion. Um, when you try to evaluate it from the ideological standpoint, you, you really lose yourself. And I think, I think you lose any sort of strong analytical power because there is no particular ideology that sits within the Boogaloo space. You know, we can't really go out there. I personally feel you can't really go out there and say anti-government is an ideology. That's, it's fraught with problems. Uh, and I think you'll, you'll find a lot of challenges coming back. If you present that to the communities of researchers and policymakers and practitioners, they're going to say, well, what does that mean? Right. 
Um, but when we talk about myths and we talk about the narratives that sit within the boogaloo, you know, there's a strong anti-law enforcement sentiment that's been, that's been growing over the past few months. There's defined martyrs within the boogaloo uh, that have really rallied individuals um, that bring cohesion. You know, the, the, the boogaloo, not every, I, I won't say every single individual because I think that's obviously inaccurate, but uh, the vast majority are favorable towards the second amendment and, and the rights bestowed by it and organize pretty heftily behind that. Even if they're not say um, the strong second amendment types we see out of militia movements or we see out of um, you know, deep conservative spaces in American culture, they still believe that the use of, of, of firearms are a necessary evil. Right. Um, and I, I think that really pulls us back to, it's a myth that stems from America's status as a revolutionary nation, you know, and the, the idea of the civil war, it's more of a medic than anything. It's not, I don't think we're really saying that the Boogaloo is going to become the next uh, CSA and try to fight for an, a carved out space um, within the American borders. I think we're more likely or more likely to see a defined cohesiveness surrounding these shared notions that America as a revolutionary country has always stood against perceived tyranny, whether it was here or abroad or, you know, within political spaces, many people feel and can find that cohesion by saying, I don't support no-knock raids by law enforcement. I don't support um, the use of police force in, in pedestrian arrests or pedestrian detainments. I don't support the notion that the government has the right to regulate my use of arms at the state level. Uh, so, you know, we see a lot of activity in January around the, the Richmond gun rights rally, where I would argue is probably the first significant presence of Boogaloo activity offline. And actually, it was predominantly peaceful. Uh, we didn't really see an uptick in the violent aspects until March, but we can, we can get into that, I think, a little later. Uh, so that cohesiveness really stems out of these shared grievances and these shared narratives towards a system that ultimately they perceive as failing in some way, shape, or form, the American people. Uh, and because that's such a broad narrative and such a broad um, target to really attach your own personal grievances against, it's, it's very universal in a lot of ways. The same way that the American dream and the American identity can be very universal to many different walks of life. Uh, I recently was reading, it's because I was watching Hamilton, I'll be honest with you, I was reading Thomas Paine's pamphlet on common sense. And, you know, a lot of the ideas that we see emerging from Boogaloo spaces have been around since those types of pamphlets were circulating in the American colonies and the early American state, the same concepts standing up against tyranny saying that the American people are being forced to take actions in a way that they don't really want to, but they're having to. And I think that's a powerful cohesive element of the Boogaloo. So I want to maybe revisit this idea that you touched on that the tension between having a concrete ideology and then the idea of a brand. And is it fair to say that the Boogaloo, it kind of embraces the aesthetics of, of the American revolution, the myth of the American revolution, the branding of the revolution and possession of arms, second amendment, et cetera. And that, if you dig deeper, there isn't sort of an ideology. There isn't sort of like, I, I kind of hate using this analogy, but like, like Al Qaeda or Hezbollah, mm-hmm. there's that there's ideological doctrine. There is like large tracks of ideological thought. Do you have that with the Boogaloo or is it really just sort of the, the end user, the end sort of interpreter is expected to just, sort of, you know, um, in like just sort of take in the memes, the aesthetics and the myth, like, how do we sort of think about this? Yeah. I mean, that's a challenging area to really sit within. And I think that's something that, you know, academics are especially well suited to really evaluate. Um, and I say that because we can't really make that determination yet. I mean, the Boogaloo is extremely new in a lot of ways. If we're going to give it the moniker of a movement, then it's very, very young, you know? Um, and I, I also hesitate with the, the Al-Qaeda references, uh, but I think it's, it's apt, uh, maybe more so ISIS in a lot of ways, just because of its sort of mastery of, of memetics and online um, 
organizing and mobilization into offline spaces. And I say boogaloo to ISIS comparison here. To, so to, to try to answer the question, you know, it's, it's really, we're not yet seeing organic development of, or, of organizations or networks in uh, hardened networks within the boogaloo. And I think that matters because when we talk about you know, ISIS or uh, Al-Qaeda, we're really kind of referring to a broader schema of actions within a movement, right? The jihadist sort of, and there's even, obviously there's movements within that and I'm, I'm not the expert in that space. Uh, and there's really good work out there that'll really break that down. But those references are already established organizations and movements. And I think that's an important distinction to make here that it's, it's not yet, able to be made, that reference is not yet able to be made with the boogaloo to those because they, we don't see those hardened hierarchies and structures yet. That doesn't mean that they won't occur. And I, I think we can definitely say we've, we've identified um, some organic growth in that direction from the boogaloo spaces. And, you know, the Facebook takedown is a good example of that in the way that they, they claim that uh, the takedowns that they initiated were targeting a, a network of violent uh, intending actors. And that, that's something that, you know, I think is really interesting. So I, I maybe want to, I want to get to the sort of the question of membership. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about members of the Boogaloo, the movement, how, like this sounds really basic, but like, how do you join? Like, is it, so if you're sort of arguing, you're pointing out that it's a meme, it's a brand, it's an aesthetic, is membership simply, if I reproduce that meme and aesthetic, then I'm automatically a member of the Boogaloo? Or how does, you know, how do membership networks work here? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question as well. I mean, we had a lot of really good questions though. But no, this one's really, really important. Uh, it really gets to the analytical challenge of what is and isn't Boogaloo, right? Um, is it just because, like you say, I, I don a Hawaiian shirt and I show up with a long rifle uh, or a long gun, excuse me, does that make me a Boogaloo individual? I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we can say that. Um, because we don't, again, we don't really know specifically what the Boogaloo is because they don't really know what they are yet. There are definite you know, groups that we can point to within it and say like, okay, these are defining themselves in a specific way. Um, Patriot Wave, for instance, they've branded, they've sold items, they wear patches, they dress in almost a similar identity uh, or excuse me, similar uniform. Um, and they refer to each other as a defined group. And I think that's important. You know, we got to take them at the face value they present themselves. But to begin to classify oneself as a member, I mean, it's not like, you know, you, you had Samantha on recently talking about Proud Boys. There's no Fight Club Proud Boys style initiation sequence that allows you to sort of roll in and be like, I took my licks, I'm a Boogaloo boy. Not really. Um, and there's not even a, like a QAnon, I'm going to put my fist up in the air and recite the, the, the pledge. That's not there either. So it really is a complicated space. And I think we have to be very careful as practitioners and researchers not to over-ascribe um, the actions of, of those that engage in terrorist activity out of the Boogaloo and those that engage in maybe more intimidatory, intimidatory uh, actions within protests that wear Hawaiian shirts and carry weapons, that we don't ascribe that to all, right? And Facebook made that clear too, and other platforms have as well. Just because there are some elements that are X does not mean that the whole is X. Um, and that matters for the membership question because it's, you know, we can't really look at this and say that Twitter account, like with ISIS, that Twitter account has X factors associated. Therefore, we can claim that it is part of the ISIS network. It doesn't exist here. Uh, and, in, in, you know, to really get into that offline online uh, debate within the membership, we quickly find ourselves in an argument over free speech and First Amendment um, issues. And that's something that, you know, me telling a Boogaloo person via some form of analysis that they're a member of the Boogaloo, that gets, that gets dicey. And I, I think that we have to be careful. Well, this is like really interesting to me because when we discuss the identity component, and so as I was doing research for this conversation, 
there was, I read maybe every news article I could find on Twitter. So every, everything. And the articles would describe the Boogaloo as white nationalists, white supremacists. Another article would describe them as accelerationists. Another article would describe them as, uh, you know, militia members. And Mm -hmm. it was just like in this sample of maybe 10 to 15 articles in the course of a weekend, there was like 15 ideological descriptions and identity descriptions. So I guess my, my question is like, as an analyst, like, what do you do when the group that you're studying is, is about aesthetics and myth as opposed to concrete ideology? Like, how do you, like, I guess the first thing is like, how do you even explain to people that, oh, there's no real concrete ideology here? Like, how do you approach that? Especially right. like given that there's 20 descriptions in the media or that there's 20 descriptions that anybody can kind of pull from. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, you're hitting the nail on the head with the challenge of it. Um, you know, I think when we as, as researchers or analysts, we have a responsibility to, to give objective analysis. Um, and I think a lot right now of what we're seeing is, um, some heuristics within the media and within the research community itself. Um, even within the analyst community to make these quick assessments that, okay, how, how can we make this relatable and, and actionable to the entities that need to take action? Right. So you're seeing a lot of people try to say like, Oh, oh, oh there's uh, there's some white nationalist actions in Boogaloo. It must be white nationalist. Okay. Uh, yes. That action you're seeing is of course white nationalist. They're, you know, given the coded references and look there, they have uh, Nazi symbology on their body and tattoo or something that doesn't make the whole that thing. One, one thing I've really tried to lean into here is that there are many permutations of the, the boogaloo just because, you know, one might outstrip the others in its, in its prevalence or in its uh, intensity does not make the whole that thing. Could it mean down the line that the others slough off or, or uh, sort of give way to that? Absolutely. It, we could very well see that it coalesces into more or less a white supremacist or white nationalist movement. That's entirely plausible. I think that, you know, it's entirely unlikely because there are many grievances that sit within Bumu that are beyond those spaces. One of the things I've sort of really tried to impress upon others as, uh, as I've briefed them or as I've presented research to them, the Bumu is more about what one brings to it than what it provides to you. And that's a powerful concept. And this goes back to what I was saying about Thomas Paine and and the pamphlets uh, that he wrote for Common Sense. This notion that the American Revolution, I mean, let's let's ask the question back, is is a revolutionary mindset a single ideology? No. Is it a single identity? It's trying to make one. It's trying to, to define itself against something else. And at this stage, we should not preclude uh, what are, what, where there's clear evidence of multiple ideological or multiple identities sitting within the Boogaloo space. Um, like you said, there's white nationalists, there's accelerationists, which I think is an extremely interesting area to explore. There's Second Amendment rights folks that are just really avid gun rights advocates. There's preppers. Um, there are social justice individuals that are more aligned with what I would have considered a Black Panther movement back in the day rather than the Boogaloo. Um, so so the, the question really comes down to why are we making these heuristics? What is the benefit of doing that when we see evidence to the contrary? I think that really, I think that gets to what you're asking. Yeah. So when you when you're in these spaces and you're sort of observing these debates, how are there like debates structured within the Boogaloo? Like I, like I keep thinking like for some reason in my head, I keep picturing sort of the debates. I I keep referencing like Hezbollah, Al Qaeda, ISIS, whatever, like just a bunch of guys sitting in a room or sitting in an online space debating. But like what you've described sounds like, like you have the first amendment guy or the second amendment guys, the white nationalists, the accelerationists, the SJWs, like how does debate conversation 
occur within the movement itself? Like, how do they reach consensus? Do they develop consensus? Or is it just, as you kind of already pointed out, like, it's just this sort of nascent, like, different groups that identify themselves as Boogaloo? Yeah, you know, this is another space that I, I really want to encourage academics and other researchers to, to really delve into. Um, you know, some individuals have done extraordinary work in you know, really identifying these debates and, and bringing that dialogue out for others like myself to really evaluate. Um, it's challenging. I'll, I'll be real honest with you. That effort is challenging because you're, particularly because so much of it exists within Facebook and Telegram, um, and other spaces that are not easy to just sit in and just watch, right? It's not like they're having a, uh, a Quora filled out in the town square saying, what are we? Mr. So-and-so, your turn. Um, you have the talking stick. That doesn't really exist. But what we do see is that in some of the larger um, groups, and I, groups I mean by Facebook groups or, or social media uh, platform defined areas, forums, it might be a better term. There are individuals who represent different views and walks within the space, and they are, well, they're doing what you do on Facebook. They're arguing. They're, they're trying to say, my view is the way we should do this. Um, they're challenging one another. They're really building it out, but not in every space, and I think that's important to distinguish that, you know, there are identifiable trends in areas and in, in, say currents within the boogaloo that are rather static, that they have a very clear idea of what they want to accomplish from it. Um, so the, I think the better question here is to ask is how do we differentiate those that are yet to understand where they are in the boogaloo or what the boogaloo is versus those that have a clear vested interest in making the boogaloo do something for itself. So that's where I find the accelerationist ideas to be very interesting and important to evaluate because the boogaloo is ripe for acceleration ex expectation. And we can see defined areas where accelerationists or individuals that adhere to accelerationist uh, sort of tactics and, and thought processes want others to carry out activity in a manner that suits their goals. Um, as we move along and evaluating it, what I will be looking for is defined goals, the political goals, social goals, uh, movement goals, that will really allow for us to take that endpoint and move backwards within what we're seeing in these debates and say, okay, now they're structuring towards this. This is the one that's rising in prominence within the debate. That's where we should really give our effort and our attention uh, and really go after that in, this, in the sense of understanding it. That's really interesting and kind of, segues to the next portion of our conversation, which is the use of violence. So you, you've, you've kind of pointed out that the, I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, that the Richmond Second Amendment protests were rather peaceful. Um, yeah. And then the violence has kind of come later. So my, my sort of first question is, where, like broad question, where do we include violence within the Boogaloo movement, its use, its practice, et cetera. And then should we view violence as sort of an expression of these internal debates? So as you, as you kind of pointed out, like structured goals, um, end goals, whatever, you know, and the inclusion of violence within those goals. So how do we think about the use of violence and how, how do we relate violence to those sort of identity-defining debates within the Boogaloo itself. Yeah. Um, That's a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's the right questions to ask. You know, we're, we're, we're really getting to the, to the meat of the situation. Um, I think I'll start with the, the idea of this, uh, how do we deal with it as an expression of that internal debate? And I think that, you know, it's the same way we deal with any political movement that starts to adopt violence. Um, you know, there's no, I mean, it, while, you know, while the Boogaloo does not have a defined monostatic understanding of what it is, like we would say a militia, right? Um, not to discredit that there's variations with militias, obviously. 
but you know, there are, there's a very clear distinguishment between the repertoire of actions that a group or a collection of individuals bring when they engage in political activism as well as political violence. Um, and that's where I sit with that. You know, how do we understand it as an expression really goes back to, well, how are they expressing it violently? If you look at an individual that gets into an argument at a protest counter protest situation, and then, you know, they, maybe they'll claim, Oh, I felt fearful for myself. Uh, and I, and I fired a shot, uh, and it was self-defense. You know, I think that's markedly different than someone like say Stephen Carrillo who plans a very calculated set of actions that result in law enforcement officers deaths. These are two very distinct things. And those, those are very hard to reconcile into a single frame of reference other than there is a, a, a scale of actions that one can take and still be considered advancing some, you know, vague understanding of what the boogaloo wants to accomplish. Um, I think we started the baseline that the boogaloo wants to push back against perceived government overreach and perceived government tyranny, then you immediately are presented with a bevy of options that say all of these different things can occur. So we talk about the Richmond rally, uh, that I think was when most early adopters of the boogaloo that weren't, you know, predisposed towards wanting to accomplish things violently were hoping it would be. And I'm talking specifically from the point of reference of individuals that engaged with it. You know, I've had some discussions with folks that are um, pro second amendment that have engaged in uh, gun rights rallies that are, that are meant to show that the, the, the American populace still believes in the second amendment and doesn't want it to be regulated to an extreme extent. And they didn't really see it as a threat to that identity, right? That second rights identity uh, or their organizing or their ability to do things. There is a clear shift and I'm going to stay away from the political implications of this. There was a clear shift as we moved towards the lockdowns of COVID that became much more, how do I put it, insurrectionary. And, you know, it's very hard to not see the co-opting of that Richmond effort uh, by more, by groups that had a more nefarious or pernicious goal. Um, and that's not to say that everything after Richmond was now leaning towards violence. I, I don't think that at all. Uh, I think we're still seeing violence as a minute portion of it. Um, but there is a, a definite shift in both narratives within, grievance narratives uh, within the Boogaloo, as well as individuals interested in, in growing more accustomed to the Boogaloo and adopting it and, and sort of helping it evolve that you know, violence might be a necessary function uh, of activism so let's go now to the the you know how your first part of your question you know violence yeah i started out by saying what is the boogaloo well it's a shared violent narrative and a myth right if you think back to the history courses that we were taught as as young children in the united states we were always taught that the american militias and forces that stood up against king george did so because they just didn't have an alternative. It was time to take up arms. We were taught in the South, you know, I grew up in Georgia. We we're taught a lot of things similarly about the Civil War, that it, it right and wrong, I, you know, that's a debate for another time. That was what we were handed, that there was a time when words failed us, the political process failed us. Uh, and violence became a necessary component to protect one's way of life and one's, um, you know, personal liberties. And there's a very powerful element of that within the Boogaloo. Many, and I, I would caution that, you know, even the most extreme adherents of Boogaloo being white nationalists or accelerationists, they still shy away from applying that violence in actuality. Getting to the point of willing to use violence is a very difficult psychological and emotional process. And there are a lot of traditional risk models that you can use to evaluate that, um, you know, outside of, understanding if we want to talk about like how do we understand that or how do we track and monitor that um you know the and i think we'll, we should probably get into this a little bit later but there's a lot of individuals the boogaloo who have intended to maybe were stopped by law enforcement or actually carried out violence that were military and i think that is an important distinction to make when we're talking about 
um, you know, sort of how do we look at violence as a component of the boogaloo? Well, who's doing the violence? And, you know, we're talking, when I say like it takes a lot, the military individuals have training that allows them to modulate that um, necessity or use and application of force. This is kind of interesting because you're describing it as violent, but at the same time, there's a lot of calls for not being violent or don't, um, you know, don't go out in the world and, and commit violence. And then there's a sort of part of the boogaloo that have been in the military or have military training that are committing acts of violence. So I guess my, my so, sort of follow-up... Let me, oh, go ahead. let me clarify something really quickly here, just so I don't, we don't give the listeners the wrong idea. Being a part of the military does not make one uh, more likely to use violence. I think that's right. very important that we, we clarify it. I just, I want to be super clear on that. Um, what we are talking about though, is that a significant portion of individuals that have been you know, arrested or carried out violence have some sort of military affiliation, whether it was former reserves or active. And that, that's something we can't, you know, sort of walk away from without really evaluating and asking our question, our questions of why is that? Um, and, and, and I want to also say that we've seen the same debate in uh, established extremist areas, white nationalist areas, uh, you know, even in terrorist organizations, they have this debate of when is the appropriate time to apply violence and should we? Um, all across the world, that, that, that debate comes up. And I think one of the most poignant examples of the impact of the use of violence in you know, maybe moving along uh, anti-government or extremist narratives within this context is the debate that Robert Bowers has asked, the Tree of Life synagogue shooter, where the words he used screw your optics, you know, that, that really resonates. There's, there's a very realistic debate within about the appropriate timing and use of violence and accelerationist factions, for instance, uh, they don't really care, right? They want you to just go do it because the faster you do it, the faster everything collapses. Others have less inclination towards that sort of wanted application of force and violence. And that's important to really understand. Sorry, not to go on a huge tangent again. I just want to clarify a couple things. It's it's great. Um, This is kind of interesting then because uh, it segues into the sort of next portion of the conversation, which was, which is, I should say, um, when we talk about the boogaloo, it, it seems like you're talking about very specific online actors and very specific offline actors. So I want to maybe make that line um, more explicit. So when we talk about that, that tension between online and offline, so it almost seems like the debate is very online and then the offline is more aesthetics, presentation. There's guys with Hawaiian shirts at the BLM protests. There's, you know, people who are saying, screw your optics or whatever. Um, how do we make that distinction between online, offline. Is there even a line distinguishing the two? Because it it just seems like, as you kind of pointed out, and to a lot of our listeners, it's just like the offline and the online nowadays, it's literally almost the same space. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, um, this reminds me a lot of the discussions that researchers and academics were having around the inspired ISIS activity, uh, you know, the, the directed from afar via telegram attacks, you know, was that an offline action? Was that an online action that materialized offline? This isn't a new debate. Uh, and I don't think we have a satisfactory answer yet. <laughs> and I know that's going to be sort of a, a non-answer answer, but it's, it's just too soon to say with this. Um, and you know, is there a line? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know that we can say that there is a specific line that gets crossed. Um, and I think it's really important that we acknowledge that as, as researchers and, and analysts to say, like, I don't know is fine to say sometimes. And in fact, it's probably good to say, uh, trying to say that I've developed the perfect assessment to move, you know, what indicates someone's moving from online activity to offline activity. I really wonder if they, if they have, and I'd love to see it. Like, please bring it to me so we can really evaluate it and put it to the test. But, you know, individuals like Carrillo, there's, there's, um, 
I don't think we could have said we, we could have predicted that based on his online presence. Um, there was another individual that, you know, early on when, when President Trump first initiated the National Emergency Declaration, within I think it was a day or two, uh, an individual decided now was the time to go and try uh, and bomb a hospital that was dealing with COVID patients. I think that was in Missouri. I'm probably getting that wrong now. It's been a while and it feels like you know, COVID lockdowns are lasting for years at this point. But, you know, that quick reference or excuse me, that quick turnaround to action based on that, that government initiation, that individual had a lot of online activity that sort of referenced the boogaloo, but there was never, I don't think we could say there was a clear point where we could look at that and, and pinpoint, okay, now they're going to go do something. In fact, the FBI stated that the individual spoke to them through an undercover agent in a car about their intentions to carry out violence. So, you know, it was an offline intelligence effort or, or law enforcement effort, excuse me, law enforcement, that really was the, the way that they, they tracked that individual's intent. So it's hard because we don't want to say that we, we can't predict from an online space because I think to some degree we can find risk modeling off of those individuals in that social media or forums and, and internet activity. But to say that we can really build a specific line in which they will cross is very, very uh, complicated. And, you know, it gets, I think a lot of people get worried that are we building some sort of minority report system if we do that? Uh, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think your question is a million dollar question. And I really, would love to see a lot of researchers delve into this specifically with the Boogaloo. Uh, but one element I'll, I'll point to that is that we need more transparency on what is happening online to, to get that. And that's not to say that, you know, we can't find plenty of Boogaloo activity. We can, it's there. Even after the takedowns, there's plenty of it still available. Um, but I think social media platforms can do more to help researchers and practitioners uh, like myself, really understand what it was they removed because just, you know, we can't really get inside of private groups. That's, that's not our role. Uh, and when we ask for questions, when questions like this are asked, it's really hard to sit down and say, yep, I figured it out. When in reality, there's still a whole set of, you know, conversations and actors that are removed from the dialogue or from the analysis. And that's something that, you know, without that, I'd be really reluctant to say that we found a lot. That's an interesting thing you touch on. And I kind of want to, I want you to kind of expand on it, which is Facebook has had these huge, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's Facebook um, had these huge sort of takedowns of the boogaloo, like these private groups, these public groups. Um, so I have sort of a two-part question. One is, are these takedowns really effective in shaping a movement? And then my second part of the question is that as a researcher, you kind of touched on this, but as a researcher, does Facebook make this material um, available to you? Does it, does it allow you to see what's taken down? Does it sort of give you insight? Does it even give you sort of scrubbed data where you're not seeing the username, but you're kind of seeing the conversation, uh, you know, how does that work? Are these takedowns effective from shaping community perspective? Are they effective from a researcher perspective? Like help us sort of think. Yeah. About this. yeah. Um, I'll start with the second one again. Uh, you know, the, the idea is does uh, question, does Facebook make this stuff available to me? I, I personally don't, uh, work with Facebook in that capacity. I would welcome it. <laughs> I think a lot of us would. Um, I do know that, that, that they have worked with researchers in the past and other areas to make that content available in some form or fashion, the extent to which I personally am not aware. And it probably changes based on um, the, you know, the, the research question or their, you know, what is it they're trying to answer themselves? Uh, I know Twitter has done this in the past with researchers. Um, and, you know, when I, when I, I previously worked in the tech industry uh, in a security capacity, and there's a lot of effort and data that goes into evaluating individuals for deplatforming. And I think credit is due where it, where it's, we should give credit where it's due. 
Facebook does have a team of individuals, uh, you know, run by Brian Fishman that do a very good job of tackling extraordinarily challenging questions that balance some of the fundamental notions of democratic or liberal democratic uh, systems. Um, and we can't really, I think, you know, it's really easy to sit back and say and critique, you're not doing enough. You should have done this earlier. Uh, but that's why we need that transparency and they, and they themselves are calling for it. You know, this is not something that is ignored by the systems, right? Or excuse me, by the platforms. And we should also point out that Facebook is not the only one uh, working against this. Discord, where uh, a similar platform to um, Telegram in the sense of its encryption, uh, its favorability by actors for its encrypted capacities, um, I mean, I, I'm sure as a gamer, you've used Discord before, you're familiar with it. It really grew out of the, the gaming community uh, and allowed you know, people to really come together and, and organize in a very strong capacity through forums and, and servers. They actually removed a server of approximately 2,200 individuals around the same time as Facebook did. Um, so the, the, the question really becomes of, uh, it's not do they make it available, but how can we better the relationship between those services, uh, Facebook and Discord and others that are expressing an interest in actually challenging these spaces and saying this doesn't belong on our platforms and we won't stand for it. Even if they're trying to make a clear distinction between, um, you know, we'll accept a certain level of speech or activity that's questionable or, or extreme in nature, but it's not advocated for violence. You know, that's fine. That's their, that's their platform. They can make that decision. I think they should help us understand precisely what they're talking about. Invite, you know, and, and they do, like I said, to a degree. But the question really becomes is how do we better that relationship between them, policymakers, practitioners, analysts that support those areas, and then researchers in the academic sphere? Because combined, that whole of, of system approach, that's going to be the most effective uh, way to really understand the challenges that, are, that we're facing. And that doesn't just apply to Boogaloo, that applies to all extremist content online. And there's much better guests than myself to talk about that, uh, that area. So I'll, I'll turn to are they effective? Again, others have a much better uh, history of knowledge on this on this space. So I'll briefly just say that, you know, I was skeptical prior to a recent, um, and prior to the Facebook takedown, I was skeptical of the effectivity of takedowns and bans and deplatforming. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a very challenging discussion to have surrounding free speech, freedom of speech and, and First Amendment in the United States, um, when it comes to that, they are private entities. They have the rights to, you know, moderate their own platforms as they see fit. And that's something that's important to understand and keep in context. But as in terms of effectivity, you know, there was a recent argument that was put forth that it really forces these area, these groups into different areas uh, that are more niche, right? So parlor or gab, um, and I always thought in my head, well, just because, uh, you know, they're moving there, they'll, they'll find their way back, like we've seen with ISIS, or, you know, they'll just reconvene and grow in their own sort of stew of hate and uh, the, the eco chamber that was provided to them in Gab and Parlor and elsewhere. And then I, I saw an argument that was, you know, these platforms aren't as easy to work with uh, for these new, like they're learning a whole new platform, Right. And as researchers, you know, we, we complain about that too. It's like, God, now I have to go and learn a whole new platform. I have to learn how to interact with it. What does this mean? What's the, the new model developed? Like, what is a like? What is this? That's the same challenge that they're facing. And that also reduces their effectivity themselves in engaging in online actions that can boost in-group sort of um, positive feedback cycles to build that identity, to really create that outgroup that's essential to developing a sense of, and need to act towards something. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't have the ability to launch raids or to harass or troll when you're shoved into a space that has nothing to harass and troll. So, you know, that's, that's a question I'm still working with and I'm, I'm still grappling with as, as personally as a researcher, but I think there's compelling arguments that it does work. And, you know, we should listen to them. We should really, we should really give it a try more and we'll see where it goes. 
That's kind of interesting because, like, when I think about Facebook, I think about, like, it has a very well-designed recommendation algorithm. It has a very well-designed sort of ad platform. And it's just, like, its whole purpose is to sort of lure and bring people in, into groups or into sort of conversations. And then I think about Gab and Parler, and it's, let's just say it's subpar. (laughs) to pull it down to Sure. Yeah, it is. How does, how do, how does deplatforming sort of manifest itself within the conversation within the boogaloo? Because it almost mm-hmm. seems like, it, like just looking at Twitter, it almost seems like that this is very much fertile ground for 1A archetype arguments. That you, you kind of yeah. see them on Twitter in the sort of conservative Twitter where it's like, Oh, Facebook can't deplatform me because I have a right to the First Amendment, right? That's the general yeah. construction of the argument. But do you see that manifesting and sort of playing out within the Boogaloo community or movement, or is it just like, oh, we got deplatformed, time to adapt? How does that work? So, so little column A, little column B. Uh, I think we've seen, you know, again, it's what you bring to it, right? So, like there are people that always have this sort of victimized stance that I'm going to be removed because of my conservatism, because of my, you know, outspokenness uh, on the left wing side of things. Everybody, every space has these individuals that really try to um, deploy that argument, you know, and yeah, you see it in the Boogaloo. And I th- but I think the more interesting space within the Boogaloo of sort of responding or prepping for uh, what they, I think, some saw as inevitable takedowns, you know, you actually saw backup pages, carbon copies, um, subs, subset groups that, that were, you know, quickly migrated to the same thing you see with Telegram, right? When a, when a Telegram channel gets um, ill, infiltrated by law enforcement or the alphabeties, if you will, uh, within the Boogaloo area, uh, that's how they refer to like, the FBI and others that that are listening in. Um, they're, they quickly will put out a list of new servers, right? And, and it'll, it'll direct people to go and find them. Or they'll put it into another area they feel is safe and it'll allow people that were previously a part of this server or this space to, to navigate their way to the new uh, node of interactivity. Um, and you, you see that to a degree with Facebook. You know, I don't, I don't want to drift into the critiquing of Facebook, but, um, you know, maybe I will a little bit here because when Facebook first took their actions, they, they made it very clear they weren't just taking actions recently with their you know, couple hundred takedown uh, Facebook accounts and, and pages and groups and whatnot. Um, they had actually earlier on, I don't remember the exact date, uh, off the top of my head, but they they made an effort before that takedown to change their recommendation algorithm, specifically what you were just referring to, that would make it more difficult for people to supposedly find the Boogaloo, right? I'm not so sure how effective it was, you know, because I, I put it to the test right after that. I went in and I started, and it wasn't just me, there was plenty of people doing this, and uh, I just still find tons of content. You can still navigate your way to the same pages. You can still find the same uh, questionable materials existing on the platform. Um, and that's the challenge, right? How do, you, how do you balance that? That's the challenge that they're grappling with. But a lot of the activity that the individuals that you know, ran the pages or were a part of them, they just simply changed the spelling. They put in a special character. They you know, shortened it or used new code words. Um, Things like that, and and that's you know when you're a platform or you're you're a regulator or you're a uh, law enforcement, you're constantly slightly behind, right? And every time you try to provide transparency uh, or sort of give a heads up to those that are part of monitoring or the research and the takedowns, you're giving them a head start, and they can plan. And there's plenty of evidence. It, they're not blind. They're not dumb. Right? There's still people that have their eyes on, on current events and reality, and they know that people have their accounts taken down. So they plan ahead, they look for ways to sort of circumvent the system and then use it against itself. Um, so that's, that's an important thing to really focus on. There is a 
a bevy of research opportunities there for someone to publish on. And I, I really look forward to someone that has the time and the capacity to do so really dig into this with a boogaloo because their use of coded language, uh, and I say they in this sense as a generic term, I'm not referring to a specific network, just the broader adherence of boogaloo or those that engage in it online. They're very good at using coded language and, and sort of skirting around um, efforts to, to stop them from doing what they do. I, I'm going to give it credit to sort of being born out of the 4chan shitposting environment where you're very good in that respect of finding new ways to edgelord your, yourself into new systems of thought. Um, and yeah, you know, there's, there is, there is something to be said, like, like you mentioned of the Gab and Parler not having those algorithms. Uh, it's something I want to transition to a bit, if, if it's all right, is talking about the same algorithms in their presence on e-commerce platforms. Um, there are similar patterns of sort of organizing and, and presence for the Boogaloo in uh, large e-commerce sites. I'm going to refrain from mentioning which ones, but they're, they're very real, right? And what alarmed me when I first saw this was the recommendations for Boogaloo specifically brought people around to, first of all, it was very, it was very, um, I think it started out fairly benign. It was, here's a Hawaiian shirt. Here's a pair of combat boots. Here's a pair of khakis or jeans, pretty standard stuff. Then you started to see, here's the plate carrier kit airsoft. Actually, there's a lot of airsoft equipment that's used, which is, it's really funny and ironic when you stop and think about it. Um, because airsoft is not real guns and, and yet these people claiming to be second amendment or folks moving into the boogaloo because of these things are using airsoft equipment because it's cheaper. It's just kind of, I personally found it a little humorous overall, but he started pairing the clothing articles with these equipment articles. And then suddenly some other things started popping up. The further I allowed my algorithm to keep going things like, Three percenter logos, the Punisher logo, which has now become pretty popular within militias that are a little, maybe a little more um, questionable in their willingness to use force, um, though not always. It's pretty prevalent. And then something else hit. The next thing I started to see in the algorithm was the Turner Diaries, novels about collapsing of the system, something a little more along the lines of literature in the area of uh, accelerationism. So this sort of collapsive, collapsitarian notions, right? I'm not gonna attribute it to these e-commerce platforms, um, but it's there, it's very present. And especially in the Telegram spaces where, you know, uh, I think the Twitter sphere likes to call it terrorgram. Um, a lot of accelerationist entities and space uh, channels will talk and use the Boogaloo as a shortcut reference to their own societal collapse goals. Um, so the fact that there's other spaces outside of social media that use similar algorithms to promote um, inadvertently, obviously, because it's not like they're out there clicking the button and saying, you need to go and look at this. Uh, they're inadvertently promoting individuals to find this content. That's a problem. That's a real problem. And it's it, to me, it says that the deplatforming uh, won't be a panacea, but rather will be a critical effort amongst many efforts we must take in order to really comprehensively address the challenges that the Boogaloo presents. So um, for my last question, I kind of want to do uh, future casting. So where does the movement go from here? So in the last since March, we've had the COVID lockdowns. We've had BLM, the uh, you know post George Flo the death of George Floyd. We've had so much stuff, and it's it's only it's only July. Ha! Huh. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's, just, it's only been four months. Thanks, twenty twenty. It's twenty twenty. <laughs> um, so, where does the movement go from here? What does twenty twenty one, twenty two, twenty five, thirty look like within this movement? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's a very challenging question because as you pointed out, rightfully so, so much has happened in the last what, six months. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think it really depends on, um, 
Well, let me back up a bit. There's going to be some, there's going to be a various, uh, there's going to be various outcomes to what, what happens with the Boogaloo. Uh, I don't think it's going to unify into a specific single entity that then has a cohesive um, set of goals it seeks to accomplish, right? I think that would be shocking <laughs> to say the least. I mean, to, to, to think that any kind of broad spectrum grievance-based worldview, if you want to call it a worldview, could unify so cohesively is, is shocking already. Uh, but specifically the Boogaloo, the fact that, you know, what we've seen so far is that it's, it's capturing individuals that have quite disparate understandings of how to accomplish things is indicatory that it will likely continue to have a varied set of future uh, impacts on society and then outcomes. One, there's two areas that I'm really looking at personally. One is the overlap of the Boogaloo and QAnon. Um, you know, it, it's, it might sound a little silly at first, but there's a lot of indicators there uh, that some of the, the spaces that both, let's just call them movements from, from the ease of the conversation, the two movements are, are, are fixating on um, are beginning to align. Um, and I don't think it'll be a wholesale alignment. I think we'll see factions aligning. And I think what we'll, we'll likely, you know, I'm going to say it, it's not going to come true. I'm going to sound like a moron for throwing it out there. But I think what we'll likely see is some sort of uh, groupings of individuals sort of model themselves in a militia-like manner, but adopt a QAnon sort of stance and, and really present themselves as the patriots of QAnon, right? Um, Personally, I don't think it's that outlandish. I think it's fairly reasonable to assume that there will be factions that overlap because of that broad spectrum appeal of the, of the book. Uh, I think another thing we'll see is, is a ramp up of accelerationist exploitation of the Boogaloo narratives. You know, like I said before, it's ripe for the picking for accelerationism. The, the growth of um, collapsitarian notions within the Boogaloo as a whole, the, the increasingly short, um, like or increasingly uh, diminishing justification towards use of violence against law enforcement and government agents is something that I think will be very appealing within the acceleration of space. And that's, uh, I think that should be the top priority for law enforcement and for uh, supporters or individuals engaged in analysis and support them. And then lastly, I think we're going to see a growth of the politicization of the Boogaloo. And I don't mean that in the sense of, Democrats versus Republicans, the actual civil war coming. No, I see it more in the sense that recently an indiv- uh, a state representative showed up at a protest, armed, her right, it's fine. Um, but in doing so, she showed up flanked by a small contingent of individuals wearing gear that I would typically associate with the Boogaloo, white shirts, plate carriers, uh, pistols and, and leg holsters and, and very clearly portraying themselves as members of the Boogaloo. That type of activism is not foreign to domestic extremist space. We've seen this before. It's, it's not new. So I think we can make a pretty strong case that we will see more and more individuals as they move into politics uh, from like running for office or, or trying to start political movements use the boogaloo to their advantage. I mean, it is a symbol of intimidation. It can be very powerful. It can be very evocative towards American romanticized notions of, of what it means to stand up against tyranny. So those are the three spaces I really see it moving. Um, and I think lastly, we really have to discuss, you know, what, what we feel is a bridge too far when it comes to boogaloo actors. Uh, and that's, that's the next thing I see coming is, is a really strong debate about how to approach them in the online space. And inevitably, I think you'll find debates about, you know, um, do we use moderate voices in the boogaloo to challenge the extremity? Like we've seen in countless of their arguments uh, about extreme perceptions and worldviews. Um, so I think, I think those are the areas we're looking, we're, we're gonna see grow. And, and yeah, it's going to be fun <laughs> in all the terrible ways that it can be fun. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
So usually before we sign off for the day, um, we usually ask our guests to leave us with a something to think about, some sort of idea that we haven't touched on or some sort of comment or idea that our audience can walk away from thinking about. Um, so please. <laughs> I, have the, I have a good one here. So I think one thing that, you know, it's a little easier when you're, when you're evaluating a terrorist organization as an analyst or a researcher to see their online uh, content, like, like um, pamphlets or, or magazines or memes and propaganda as a whole, you can sort of find yourself as a researcher that's, you know, focused on that um, with some affinities towards it. Like, Oh, I prefer looking at this. I prefer looking at that. Or like, Oh yeah, there's that again, kind of funny, whatever. I think when it comes to the boogaloo, particularly for Americans and somewhat for Canadians, I'm not going to discount their uh, similar mindsets in some regards. I think we have to really ask ourselves is why is it that the American romantic notions of insurrection and revolution can be so damn funny. Why is it their memes are so good, right? Because we have to acknowledge that some of these memes are actually pretty funny. They're good memes. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person for finding their memes funny. We're not saying that you're you're uh, finding a racist meme funny or something like that. No, no, these are much different. These are these are rooting out of the same American identities that we share. And I think that's the question you know I would want listeners to walk away from and ponder is. If it's so easy for you to find humor in this, imagine what it's like to be that person that you're targeted to join, right? Or to, to be, uh, to expand the audience of the Boogaloo. And think about how difficult it's going to be to challenge it when the narratives that are being co-opted are so fundamentally a part of who we are that we don't realize the problems uh, with those memes until after we've already had a good chuckle. And that's, that's something I try to leave when I do briefings, I try to leave people with uh, as well, just sort of make them feel a little uncomfortable because you should, you should be uncomfortable with how easily this reflects our shared identities. So yeah, let's leave the listeners a little uncomfortable. Well, thank you so much. Um, that was Matt Kreiner. He's an analyst and researcher of the far right and radicalization. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Really, uh, really enjoyed it.